This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 97. Today's episode is all about how to commit to activism without being consumed by anger, self-pity, or hate. The impact of this is to say like all those small blessings of our lives that we take for granted or overlook every day, they become more noticeable because we start looking for them. And to me, that is um, an incredibly profound practice in recognizing the light in our world. I mean, it's so easy to focus on the dark. There's so much negativity around us and our brains are wired to find it and to stick with it. And and so being intentional about saying, you know what, I'm going to look for the light. And and what I've found is it really opens up your eyes to how much more good there is in the world than than there is bad. And it, it instills a sense of hope. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Standing up for what you believe in is, in my opinion, one of the most honorable things that you can do. I feel proud, even when I'm up against resistance, or even when my life is more difficult, because I know that I'm living in alignment with my values and beliefs. I read a meme the other day, because hey, isn't that where we get all of our inspiration these days? (laughs) That said something like, stand up now so your kids don't inherit a world where they can't. That hit hard. The problem is, fighting for a cause and spending so much time and thought immersed in your own ideology and then surrounding yourself with all the people who think the same is both amazing and also the exact directions to create your own echo chamber. I've found that the more I fight, the easier it is to become angry at the world around me. Why can't everyone else see what I see? How are they more afraid of this than that? Why do so many people believe this nonsense? Are they really that scared or is everyone just dumb? Is that what they really think that I believe? The frustrating part is that there are so many misconceptions as to what people are even fighting for. We all think that we see the other side clearly, but I can't say for certain that any of us do. We saw a lot of this the last two years. I spent a lot of time on both sides of almost everything, just trying to see what people really believed, what was driving their behaviors, and what truth lied behind any of it. It was eye-opening. I spent most of my life living on one side of a political argument in a city where everyone thought the same as I did. Maybe that's even why I thought that way. What I found when I started exploring was that most of the talking points about what the other side wanted or what the other side believed weren't actually accurate at all. Each side warps what the other's motives are to make them sound like monsters, which is genius when you're driving a political campaign, but pretty terrible if you care about unifying people. And I don't want to get into specifics because usually when I do, all of our emotional programming kicks in and we start to see each other's differences more than our similarities. And that's not the goal here. 
But I will say that whenever I feel myself really disliking a whole group of people who think differently than I do, I try to relocate to their humanity. Usually that looks like getting curious and asking questions and dropping my own agenda or the need to persuade while I do it. But I'll be honest, even so, the emotion still kicks in. The part of me that wants to word vomit all of my facts and figures starts screaming inside my head while the outer version of me is just smiling and nodding. (laughs) If I don't crack, that is. And the more time that I spend building my case, researching, reading personal stories, hearing people who agree with me, the more black and white an issue becomes to me. And that's just setting the world up for more division. So what do we do? How do we participate in activism without being consumed by anger or hatred or even self-pity and hopelessness? Well, that's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Dr. Simran Jeet Singh. He's the executive director of the Aspen Institute's Religion and Society Program. He's senior advisor for equity and inclusion at YSC Consulting and a visiting professor at Union Seminary. He's also the author of The Light We Give, The Power of Sick Wisdom to Transform Your Life. So three key things we will learn are the intersection between hate and fear, how to get comfortable embracing your discomfort, and a daily practice to keep your optimism while taking action. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Simran Singh to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Excited to be with you. So what's your story? What inspired you toward activism and then eventually kind of a more mindful approach to activism? Uh, I guess we're, we're jumping right into it. So I, I, I guess I'll go there with you. My experience in this country, I, I grew up in Texas uh, to, a, to a Punjabi Sikh immigrant family. So we were the only kids in all of South Texas who wore turbans. And, and we experienced from a really young age uh, what it was what it felt like to be excluded, to be treated differently. And, you know, at the time we didn't really have the language, um, but inequity. I mean, we, we experienced it every day, whether it was on the playground being left out or in sports matches where, you know, refs and rule books said we couldn't play or, you know, when we go to airports and, and we have to go through secondary screening and racial profiling and all that kind of stuff. And so I think, I think that experience, the deep experience of knowing what it feels like, the pain you feel when you see those experiences in other people, knowing that other people go through similar challenges. I mean, I think that's what really woke me up uh, to activism. There was a long period in my life where I thought what I experienced was so different from everyone I knew. And, and in many ways it is, 
I always just thought of myself as isolated, that no one would understand what I went through. But as I started to get to know people better and learn more about the challenges they faced, I, I recognized it as as a shared challenge in many ways. And that's really what drove me uh, into activism and, and really fo- focusing in on securing justice for everyone. I'm going to ask this question because I feel like the world has become so divided that people are just like strengthening their own talking points. That It's hard to see the other side sometimes. And, and one of the things that I hear come up from the people that are resistant towards even seeing that there's a problem here is that people say like, well, so many kids are bullied. And so I'm curious, how do you see the difference between like actual racist bullying or being bullied because of your culture, where you come from versus like, I was bullied for years, like just by the cool kid who didn't want to think I was cool. I felt isolated. Like, what is the difference for those who don't understand? It's such a good question because I think in in an ideal world, kids wouldn't face bullying. And, And so much of how we operate as a society and as individuals is to just create hypothetical aspirations out of context and just say, this is, this is what we want. And there's something really beautiful about that. I mean, I, I love, I love when we, when we talk about our cultural values or our aspirations and, and really set our sights on those. I think that's really important. Uh, but I think there's also something really dangerous about uh, not being pragmatic or practical about it. And, and, you know, to turn it back to your question, I, I was also one of these people who said, you know, we need to eradicate bullying. Like we just need to get rid of it. And and then I had kids and I'm, I'm like observing and paying attention more to how kids operate. And I'm recognizing what we all already know in our hearts, which is kids, kids can be rough with one another. And, and bullying is not just because you look different. It might be the way you speak. It might be a disability you have. It might be, you know, who your favorite basketball team is. I mean, kids find all sorts of reasons to pick on one another. And I I don't think it's practical for us to say, as I said, and as I thought, we can get rid of bullying altogether. So then the question becomes, what's the goal? Like, what are we trying to accomplish with our kids here? And part of it to me is to help them see the kinds of people that they are and the kinds of people they can be. And part of the lessons that I'm trying to teach my girls, you know, of course they will have biases and of course they'll have stereotypes of people. And of course they'll meet all sorts of challenges themselves around the way because of their identities or where they come from or how they look or what their parents look like and all, all that kind of stuff that we all know. But to me, the the difference here with regard to, to the type of bullying and, and the way that I'm trying to think about it with my own kids is what are the core values that we're trying to teach here? How, how do we get them to see the inherent dignity in every person and recognizing what messages they're going to be getting from society that are oppressive and hurtful, right? Racism, misogyny, homophobia. And and once we can see that all of this is going to be in the air that they breathe anyway, then, then recognizing that it's my responsibility as their parent to help counteract that. And so in some ways, it's, it's almost a very strategic decision if we want to think about it this way with, with our kids and even for ourselves, right? There, there are all sorts of biases that we carry constantly. And perhaps one way to approach becoming more mindful and just is to say, let's identify the areas where they are going to be most likely to have bias or bigoted ideas. And let's, let's deal with those proactively first. And, and that, to me at least has become my approach to, to parenting with my own kids. So 
a big part of it. It's not just like how are they feeling because they're being excluded and they're being told that they're they don't fit in or whatever, but it's more like what are they learning about reality right now? Like what messages are being drilled into them because they're probably going to carry this along with them if they hear it often enough as well, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, our our inclination as parents and as teachers and as adults in general is to protect our kids from any kind of hurt. And I have that impulse too, right? Actually, I'll tell you yesterday, my, my older daughter was, we were playing at the beach with a friend and her friend uh, pushed her off. They were jumping off the lifeguard chair onto a big pile of sand and all the, all a bunch of kids were there and doing it. It's kind of a game that they play. And, and the other girl pushed my daughter and, and my daughter landed face first in the sand and she cried a little bit. And I mean, it was <laughs> as a parent, I was horrified. And my, my impulse was to scold this girl and to, to sort of like take my daughter away and, and, and the play date there. I mean, that's in my heart. That's what I really wanted to do. And and what I was grappling with in that moment was that is a protective response. I, I want to protect my daughter and make sure she never feels hurt or pain in the way that all of us feel for our kids. But recognizing that actually this can be a learning moment for her in which she can protect herself from future pain and learn how to deal with these kinds of challenges and difficulties as they arise. And so I think, I think part of what I'm thinking about is how do we encode and instill resilience in our kids so that when they meet difficult moments, they're ready to stand up for themselves and stand by their values. And I think that's that's so much of my experience growing up in this country with a turban and brown skin and, and having to figure out how I wanted to interact with people when they didn't necessarily like me or want me around. And so, so I do think there's something really important here about giving our kids and giving ourselves the opportunity to lean into those uncomfortable moments and figure out what is what is an appropriate, authentic response that helps us feel proud when we're walking away of, of who we are. And so, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a really difficult thing to actually do in practice, which is why I think we don't tend to do it uh, in, in our culture and in our society. But I, th- I think we're worse off for it and, and we, we would be much better off uh, if we started to, to bring that into our daily practice. Right. And we're talking about kids right now, but it's funny. I think the main role of kids is it's like this little reflection for me where so many of the things that I've kind of put off or I'm like, I'll work on that later. (laughs) I'm not ready to give up that bad habit. I'm not ready to give up that reaction because something about stewing in it feels good or I think it does or whatever. But then you have a kid there and it's like, oh, it's it's not about me anymore. This child's going to carry it on. But even without kids, the way you look at that, like, okay, how can I, if somebody were watching me, what, how would they, what would they take from this? And I think that happens so often where somebody can be the victim of something, but then their reaction ends up making them also a perpetrator. Like they end up punching the guy or whatever it is, you know? And then mm. people that around them watching, then they're like, oh, well, that's why there's that stereotype. Look at this person doing this. And it's like, so what are you thinking before you had kids, when you were dealing with some of this racism or any other of the challenges that we tend to be confronted with that causes these reactions, what do you say to yourself in those ways so that you're still aligning with your values rather than just being reactionary? What do you say to yourself in those ways so that you're still aligning with your values rather than just being reactionary? 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MindLove. Just go to Indeed.com slash MindLove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash MindLove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you say to yourself in those ways so that you're still aligning with your values rather than just being reactionary? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, it's been, for me at least, uh, years of practice, decades of practice. And I, I still wouldn't say that I'm uh, perfect at it. I mean, uh, far from it. I, I, there are often moments where people say things to me or do things to me, and I, I don't walk away feeling proud of how I responded necessarily. So, it's, it, it, you know, that's to say this is, this is a constant practice. Uh, and it, it really is practice. But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the the experience I had when I was younger really, really informs my approach. Um, because, you know, when, when I was younger, I remember actually the first time someone called me a terrorist. It was it was a soccer referee who wanted to search my turban uh, because he said I probably had bombs in there. And, um, and I was a kid and I didn't know what to do. And I really wanted to play with my team. And so I just let him search my turban. And I hated myself. I mean, I'd never let anyone touch my turban before. It's not something I do now. I, I just was 
really disappointed with my with my passivity in that moment. And I, I thought about it for weeks, I mean, several weeks. I think part of what I was experiencing in that moment was recognizing that giving it um, to people's racism is not is not going to make me feel good. And then about a year later, uh, a basketball teammate of mine, you know, we were playing in the locker room after practice one day and he pulled off my turban and he, you know, he made some racist joke and, and, and I knew he was kidding, but he pulled off my turban and I got upset again. And I started thinking about my promise to myself that I wouldn't be passive anymore. And I just started punching him and, and it turned into like a real, a real flight. And, and it was, it was serious. And, and our teammates eventually separated us. Uh, but I remember walking away from that and again, not feeling good. And it, it was such a strange experience because here I was like a 12 year old at this point, And I'm, I've basically taken the two options that I had available to me, right? It was fight or flight. And I did both and neither of them left me feeling good. And, and I knew in my heart that there, there had to be another way of dealing with these situations. Uh, one that I didn't walk away feeling upset or disappointed or more frustrated, but one where I felt proud of how I walked away. And so, so part of, part of the experience for me was trying to figure out what this third path looked like. And I, I think this is something that we're all struggling with right now. How do you, how do you sincerely engage uh, with the difficulties of our world uh, when they feel so immense and overwhelming and intense? I mean, it's, it's really tough. And, and I think we have to go beyond our instincts to, to either fight or to give in and, and really figure out how to sincerely engage in ways that make us feel like we're, we're giving what we can of ourselves to ensure that our values are lined with our behaviors. I think that's something that's really been important to me for walking away with satisfaction rather than frustration. And also to ensure that we remain committed and steadfast to reducing the suffering of people around us, right? So, so to me, and this is part of sick philosophy, it's about developing ourselves internally, strengthening our ethical fortitude, our mental fortitude, so that we can meet each moment uh, with the best of who we are. And also, it's about remaining clear about our own commitment to one another so that when it feels easy to walk away, we don't because we feel bound to one another and, and committed to, to reducing each other's suffering. So I think that's, that's sort of a overview, I guess, of, of how, I, how I've come to this point. It's, it's really drawing from different spiritual traditions, particularly my, my own sick philosophical tradition. Uh, but it, it really has changed uh, my experience of, of dealing with all the ugliness in our world and, there, and there's a lot of it. And it's really easy to get caught up in it and to be down and feel dark all the time. Um, but, but I think there's this approach that I've, I've been grateful enough to, to receive uh, has given me an approach that, that really works well, at least for me. Yeah, because you're right. We, one of the things you said in your book is that we tend to either ignore or agitate the problem. So we just like give in and just let this person be a bully or let the government do this or, you know, just, I'll, I was going to name specific examples, but I know it's going to divide, so I'm going to leave that out. <laughs> and so, and or we agitate it, we we fight or we we aren't aligned with those values. And so what do you recommend doing? Like, how do we really get in line with those values when it comes to an issue that is meaningful and important and also we're very affected by? Like, what is your process for sitting down and saying like, okay, well, how do I want to show up for this? And then actually finding the avenue 
where you can make a difference rather than just posting memes on memes on social media three times a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's so true. That's that's exactly where we end up, and it's it's part of why we feel I think so disillusioned because that's our default mode, and we know deep down that we're not actually doing anything, right? If we're posting on social media or we're announcing something to our friends about our political views, but not following through with action. We know, we know that's hypocrisy. We know we're hypocrites. We know that we're part of the problem, um, but we're, we're not able, we're not really able to figure out how. And I think part of it is because it's so counter to what we have in our culture, right? Like culturally, I was just talking about this to, to a friend today. Culturally, we like, we don't really learn values. I mean, where would we? I mean, we don't, we don't learn them in school. I didn't, I grew up in Texas at public school. It wasn't something we really talked about. So if you asked me as a 13, 14 year old, what I stood for or what was most important to me in terms of who I was or my principles, I, I wouldn't have had a clear answer for you. I, I, I mean, I probably would have been able to come up with something, but it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been something I felt deep down because I hadn't really pondered on it before. And so I think, I think part of the process that we all need to really figure out how to, how to bring into our lives is, is spending some time internally or with our families in the ways that companies do and, and really thinking about, well, what are, what are we here for? What are we trying to do? What's my, what's my mission in life? What's my vision? What are my values? And these can change from time to time as we evolve, just like companies evolve, right? Like things change, life changes. That's great. But the values that really drive us, they're, they're at the core of our being and, and we need to spend some time introspecting. And part of the benefit of doing this is not just articulating what's most important to us, but also having that clarity in mind. And, you know, part of what I describe in the book, and, you know, this is, this is true for, for my lived experience, the clarity of those, of the practice of articulating values, what that means is in difficult moments, you really can reflect on, hey, what's my compass? Like literally, we talk about a moral compass. Like what's, how do I make this tough decision? And there, there are all sorts of moments in life where, and especially with racism and hate that I've experienced, like there is, there is no perfect answer and you have to figure out how to do the best you can. And so I think, I think step one, articulating and identifying one's core values after, after a reflective process, process uh, is really powerful. And then the next, the next step that I would recommend, and I think we don't do this either culturally, is to give ourselves daily practices, right? So whatever, whatever someone defines as their values, if honesty is one of your values, then you know, what is one thing you are going to do every day to practice honesty? If gratitude is one of your values, what is one thing you'll do every day to practice gratitude? Because I think, you know, one of, yeah, I mentioned this in the book too, we, we live in such a way that we expect ourselves to be perfect when difficulties arise, but we've never really been exercising those muscles. And I have found that people who have been exercising those muscles, and this is especially true in, in the, the hate crime work that I've done and worked with victims, I found this over and over again. When you're working with communities who have practiced daily how to live with love, then it's very natural for them to respond to hate with love. And for the rest of us who haven't been practicing that, of course, we wouldn't be ready uh, or be or have find it in our hearts to meet hate with love because we haven't been building it. And so, so to me, that's really the next critical step uh, after identifying the values. It's it's daily practice, I, and I 
you know, all of this is really simple. I don't think I'm breaking any news when I'm telling people like all you really need to do is figure out where you want to go and then start getting there. Um, but there is something I think really important about connecting the dots when it comes to values in a, in a society where we're not really talking about these kinds of things, at least, at least not often enough. Yeah, I find that I've never learned about values until I started a journey of self-help. And then I'm like, oh, so we can just like decide how we want to be and then come up with little ways to create that daily practice so that we can <laughs> constantly be reinforcing this. Because what people don't realize is that if you are not intentional about who you want to be, then society, the people around you are going to create you instead. Like, we are always creating ourselves. Only so many people are doing it unconsciously because they haven't added any intention to it. And so I've done this practice so many times and it's not even like a one-time thing that I need to do because you find yourself losing it after a while and then you're like, God, I just feel like my life is chaotic. I don't feel the way I want to feel. I'm not doing the things I want to do. Why is that? And it's like, well, regroup figure out where you've slipped. Like, are you doing those daily practices? Are you practicing your mental habits? Or are you just, again, going back to the kind of autopilot that we tend to default to? So I'm curious, what are some of the daily practices that you instilled so that you could align more with the values that you wanted to? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are some of the daily practices that you instilled so that you could align more with the values that you wanted to? Mm, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just first agree with everything you said. And like you, so many years of my life passed where I didn't realize that we really could shape who we become. And, and of course, it sounds silly in retrospect because, of course, we can. Um, it, it never really occurred to me. Um, that we could be as intentional um, about creating our lives as we are about everything else we're intentional about. So I really appreciate that point. In terms of daily practices, I have a, I have a few that I'll share um, that I have found really powerful for me. And, and and what I would also say is, you know, I'm I'm not the type of person, and I don't think Sikh philosophy is the type of philosophy that insists that there's only one way to 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 self improvement or to happiness, and you know, everyone has to find their own journey. And, and getting there. And so I'll, I'll share two that have been really powerful for me. And when I'm at my best, I think I'm, I'm really in tune with these practices. And they're both, honestly, they're both extremely simple. One is a gratitude list. And each evening, noting down, literally on pen and paper, noting down three, three things that I'm grateful for. And, you know, part of my experience with this is as you become more committed to this practice what you might find as as i did is that through you throughout your day 
you begin noticing things that you tell yourself, I'll make sure to, I'm just going to note that in my head so that I make sure to write that down tonight. And, and the impact of this is to say like all those small blessings of our lives that we take for granted or overlook every day, uh, they become more noticeable because we start looking for them. And to me, that is an incredibly profound practice in recognizing the light in our world. I mean, it's so easy to focus on the dark. There's so much negativity around us and our brains are wired to find it and to and to stick with it. And and so being intentional about saying, you know what, I'm going to look for the light. And and what I've found, and I think you will too, is it really opens up your eyes to how much more good there is in the world uh, than, than there is bad. It, it, you know, it instills a sense of hope uh, and, and beauty in, in a way that, you know, I've, I found hard to find in other ways. My second practice that I, that's really been transformative for me, um, also really simple, and that's take 10 seconds every day to notice the humanity in somebody that you're interacting with. And, it, you know, it doesn't have to be stated out loud. It doesn't have to be corny where you, you know, say something deep to them. Like it, it could just literally be seeing someone walking down the street and thinking about them and their family and where they're coming from and what their lives might be like. I think that to me, it, it does a few different things. One is it, it helps you see the world in a much bigger way, right? Rather than having the narrow egocentric view that's just limited to our own lives, um, helping to, to get some perspective and recognize the world isn't just about you. And there's some humility uh, and some graciousness in that. And I think the other thing that really it's helped me do is, is to develop empathy uh, for people that I don't know and may never interact with and to really feel connected with them in a way that I think all of us want to feel, but it's, it's so hard to feel that way because Otherwise, we're always taught to look for difference, right, on the basis of race or gender or sexual orientation or religion or whatever it is. Uh, but I, I think I think this practice, for me at least, has helped me to start to see people in a relational way rather than in an oppositional way. And that's been really powerful. That's so difficult when somebody's actually, like, personally yelling at you or offending you. Or I, I hesitate to use the word offending because I just feel like being offended is a personal problem. <laughs> and I mean, you know, like you have some control mm-hmm. there. And, but that's not to say that people don't say heinous, awful, horrible things to another person or like legitimately move to oppress them in different ways or to actually hurt them, whether emotionally or physically. But one of the things that I try to remind myself is that Often that hate that seems so clear is actually stemming from some version of fear, but it doesn't always work. <laughs> like I know that logically or maybe spiritually is it's something I've learned, but when it comes down to it, it's so much more difficult to actually find that humanity in the other person who's suddenly become like some monster toward you. How do you handle that? It's a, I mean, it's a very real question, and I think you know. In some cases, it's easier. In some cases, it's harder, right? I think I think one of the one of the things that, that many people who come from the margins of society have to learn pretty quickly um, is that other people's bigotry is their problem, right? It's a problem in their hearts. It's not a problem with us that we've done anything wrong or that we have something wrong in our hearts, and that's really helped me. Now, of course, your point is. That's true, but even then, their bigotry can have real consequences on us, right? Like, we may not want to take it personally, but in some ways, it is 
about our person and our safety and security. And that's, I think that's very true. And, and so for me, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One is none of this is to say that, you know, we shouldn't hold people accountable for their mistreatment and harm of others, right? Like, of course we should. Um, this is, this is, these things are not mutually exclusive. But I think, you know, what we're talking about here is how do we receive these moments in ways that do not, do not suck us into other people's negativity, right? That's, that's part of my challenge here. And so, so one, one piece is to say, well, recognize that it's not about you. This is something I literally remind myself in these moments, right? Their anger is not, it's not about me. It's about them and whatever problems they have. And that's really helpful. And another, another aspect of, you know, what grounds me in these moments is, is to ask myself, like, did I do anything wrong to this person? Is what they're saying legitimate? And, you know, of course we're all biased, but part of the experience in these moments. And, and one of the questions I'll also ask is if I replaced my, my personal self with someone else who looks like me, uh, would this person have the same reaction to them? And, and if the answer is yes, then probably it's not really about me, right? It's probably about someone's racism or hate or whatever it is. And I'll say just to sort of wrap this one up, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll tell you, and, and this is a story that I tell in the book, it actually, you know, spans a few a few chapters, several chapters in the book. This has worked for me in most contexts. The most difficult experience I had in learning to see someone's humanity uh, was was a white supremacist who did exactly what you just described, right? He came into a sick place of worship, massacred the congregation, then killed himself. So he never apologized, never had any remorse for what he did, or at least not, our, not, not explicitly. And I had to come to terms, after a few weeks at least, uh, I had to come to terms with the fact that I was angry with him and he was gone and, and my anger wasn't hurting him. It was only hurting me. And so I think that also the recognition that what is inside of us doesn't necessarily reduce, it, it's not necessarily going to produce anything positive for us unless we learn how to channel it uh, for the good. Um, that, that to me has been a really, a really difficult lesson to learn and what I'm, what I'm always working on. Yeah, I have to like explicitly remind myself that this anger that I'm holding on to, the passive aggression I'm holding on to, the envy, whatever, I'm the only one holding that. I'm carrying that energy. And not only that, but I'm spreading it with every other interaction that I have before I actually take care of and manage it. But you said something in your book that I love you to elaborate on. You said that you don't believe in evil as a reality of our world. Can you go deeper into that? Mm, yeah, this is this is one of the teachings in sick philosophy that I. I find myself really attracted to. And, you know, part of, part of the reason it feels so compelling is we live in a world where everything is divided and, and our way of conceptualizing the world so often, whether philosophically or theologically or otherwise, you know, there's good and evil is, is one form of this, but we can say um, heaven and hell or um, pure and polluted or sacred and profane, right? Constantly we have these dichotomies of of how we see the world and and it produces in many ways a 
a polarized uh, possibility, right? You're either on one side or the other. And right now, as we are polarized in this moment, um, we can we can see the extreme consequences of that, right? Like everyone on one side is saying the other side is evil and, and the reverse is happening on the other side. And what, what Sikh philosophy offers us uh, and other spiritual traditions have elements of this too, um, is, is a different way of viewing the world in which everything is interconnected, right? In Buddhism, we would call it interdependence. In in Sufi mysticism, we would call it wahadat al-wajud. You know, there, there are different terms and different traditions. And part of what I have really appreciated is the opportunity to think a little bit differently in a way that does not, in, in my view at least, create artificial binaries and even endpoints on, on where we are, who we are, but to really offer, a, offer an approach where we say, you know what, our starting point is, is divinity. Like we all, we all come from the same source. And if we're all from the same source, then, then who are we? Like what, what sense does it make to try and say that something is good or bad? You know, in, in Sikh philosophy, the teaching is, it's almost like at an atomic level, divinity is infused in every aspect of this world. And so if that's how you come to view the world, of course, you know, you would care for creation in the way that you care for one another because it becomes an act of worship, right? Service, serving one another uh, becomes a way to express gratitude for everything you have. So there's some really beautiful practical implications. And I think even at a philosophical level, being able to, to take a very simple logical position of saying, well, if, if divinity is the source of this world and everybody is created from it, and it doesn't even have to be a, a religious or a theological view, right? If there's a single source that created us all, if we're all composed of the same material, then there's something that binds us all together. And that way of looking at ourselves and one another uh, produces a different relational possibility uh, that, that, I, that I have personally found to be both sensible and, and and more sensible than the than the dividing up but also also one with real uh, implications for how we are then able to interact with one another in more humane ways rather than simply saying this person is rotten and throw them in jail and who cares how they're treated or these people are inferior and we are justified to enslave them because of their skin color or where they come from or whatever so it's it to me it, it just presents a different possibility with with much more humane uh, outcomes for all of us. Yeah, it's kind of lazy to just categorize somebody as evil because it, it really is just taking the humanity away from them. And it is so difficult in practice, though, because I remember, actually, it was in the beginning of 2020, the world was shutting down, and I had just like decided, okay, I'm not going to get involved in like all of the arguments everyone's going to get involved in. I'm going to focus on helping people feel better and, and trying to decrease the division that's just increasing everywhere else, it seems. And I sent out an email about how, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong, like the, kind of the dangers, basically what you were saying about like viewing things as right or wrong. And people pushed back against that. They had such a difficult time. They're like, what do you mean? How do you say there's no evil in the world when pedophilia exists, for example, or whatever? And it's like, you know, I don't even really fully know how to answer mm -hmm. that. All I know is what good is it doing me in this moment to view things from that perspective? 
Whereas it, it takes away control because then it's just this big force that's greater than me versus, and I'm not saying it can solve all the world's problems though. So, but where is that balance? Where's the balance of deciding like, okay, yeah, this isn't a helpful perspective, but then grappling with this concept that's just kind of hard to wrap your head around knowing what goes on in some areas of the world. But where is that balance? Where's the balance of deciding like, okay, yeah, this isn't a helpful perspective, but then grappling with this concept that's just kind of hard to wrap your head around knowing what goes on in some areas of the world? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I'm thinking about a conversation that, you know, I, I shared that story of my, of my daughter being pushed off the, the lifeguard chair and, and her having to figure out how to deal with that moment. Um, and the convert, one of the conversations we had afterwards uh, was right in line with this. And, you know, sometimes the, the conversations with our kids are the hardest because we have to distill complex ideas into ways that young ones can understand. And I'll share with you what, what we talked about, which I think is actually perhaps digestible, at least for, for a complex philosophical question. And, and the point that I was making to her and that she understands very clearly as a six-year-old is, you know, your friend is not a bad person, but what she did is bad. And it's it can be as simple as distinguishing between people and their behaviors, right? And I think part of part of what this allows for, you know, getting into a moral relativism, I, I wouldn't do that, right? I do I do think there are things that we can legitimately describe as just or unjust, uh, fair and unfair. Um, and so I do believe that there is there are places where we can draw the line and things where that we can stand up for and things that we can say, you know, we're, we're not, we're not willing to tolerate that. And and hate is one of those things, but even with hate, I, I would never say that, or at least I would try not to say it. I've, I've been challenged on this uh, in my own life in, in learning how to navigate this, but I wouldn't say that someone who is hateful is wrong. I mean, I, I, is, is a bad person, uh, but I would say that their perspectives are wrong. I would say that their socialization is is wrong. I, I would say that what their behaviors are are wrong and, and that we need to deal with all of those. And if we don't, then more people will be harmed. And so I think in, to a degree, and I don't think it's overly simplistic, it's being able to separate the innate humanity that exists in all of us, what many spiritual traditions refer to as light, right? We all have a light that is constantly glowing inside of us. And we need to learn how to see that. And also, we can recognize that our behaviors sometimes are not are not in line with what is acceptable or tolerable or what's good about who we are. And so that that's perhaps at least one distinction that might be helpful for people. I love the way you phrase that. Just we do all have a capacity for light. And unfortunately, if we're not intentional about it, I feel like that light can just be dimmed over time, whether we're criticized or we are oppressed or we, uh, you know, just get kind of pushed back or pushed down by life sometimes. And so, we have to kind of make that choice mm-hmm. to see ourselves that way. Or as you put it in your book, 
we have to enter into the life-changing realm of selfless, unconditional love. And you make the point that we all carry a greater capacity for love than we realize. But I'm curious, how do we open ourselves up to it? And, and what does it look like in practice? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. And I, I think it's a constant, at least for me, it's, it's something that's constantly changing. And, and part of that has to do with my own life situation and the challenges that I'm facing. And I, I honestly, like it's, it's especially parenting where um, you have these kids and um, parenting is hard and you love your kids and you learn along the way uh, that that love can take different forms, right? Like sometimes it can be cuddling and sometimes it can be discipline. And, and so for me, it's, there, there's some nuance here uh, with regard to love um, and, and, and practice, which is, trying to figure out how to not just make it a daily practice, which we can, which we can all do. And I, I think we could all ask ourselves that question, right? What is one thing I will do each day to be more loving? Maybe it's a compliment to a colleague. Maybe it's a gift for a neighbor. Maybe it's something, you know, a, a story that you're trying to read about a different culture. So you can be more empathetic, right? Like those, those are easier and, and we can think of those on our own. I think what's what becomes harder um, and what I would challenge people to do is to start expanding what love looks like in their daily life so that it's not just the easy, soft, relational pieces, uh, but also, for example, what are you doing to make the world more just today, right? Like that is a practice of love. Uh, what are you doing to hold someone in power accountable for the way they mistreat other people. Like that's also love. And so I, I think those different ways of asking that same question can not just help us grow our love through our daily practice, but also can help us broaden what our experience of love is so that it becomes part of every facet of our life, not just the soft feel good moments. I love that. Again, so much comes back to like these choosing who we want to be because so often our the way we handle other people's hate or our oppression and I, I feel weird saying that because I know that I'm just this white girl on the other end of the mic I don't really know oppression but I just mean collectively because I'm sure we've all felt it in in certain ways, whether it's a, a choice that you made and now you're not allowed to do certain things because of that choice or whatever it is, or it's something deeper where it's just like who you, how, who you were when you were born and how people respond to that person, which is a whole different beast that I have not had to deal with. But so much of what we do is just reactionary. And so we're, and I don't blame anyone it's survival mode you know you're you're triggered emotionally you're offended you're you're actually being told that you're not worthy or whatever it is and and so it's it's hard not to respond from an emotional place but as with so many things we have to decide who we're going to be regardless of how anyone else is toward us, regardless of how the world around us is. And we don't need to compromise that goal for ourselves or, or that vision that we have of that true self. Because if we 
if we do compromise, then that's that becomes our belief. Our belief becomes aligned with what we're being told that we are rather than who we actually are. So thank you so much for bringing such a loving perspective to a tough topic. And for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your book, where is the best place to connect with you online? Oh, thank you. So the, the book is called The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. And it's available everywhere books are sold. I always... Uh, support local bookstores when I can. So uh, that's where I would urge folks to go. I'm on social media way too much. I'm on Twitter as Simran, S-I-M-R-A-N, and on other platforms as SikProf, S-I-K-H-P-R-O-F. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's a really thoughtful conversation. That's even for me, just putting different pieces of life together and into perspective. And I, I love your emphasis on being proactive about shaping the people we want to become. We, I, I believe we have that opportunity. And you're right that so much of what we do every day is in reaction to what's happening. I and mean, we're reacting to emails that come in our inbox and we're reacting to how people are talking to us at the store and being a little bit more intentional about who we want to become. I mean, that could even just a little bit could go a really long way. So re- really appreciate that. Thank you. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash x97. Your challenge for this week is to do a little of that gratitude practice that we talked about. I haven't made a gratitude practice a challenge in a while, and it honestly should be something that's a part of all of our daily lives. It is so, so helpful. I'll be honest, my gratitude practice slips sometimes, but I also know that I can feel it when it does. So usually when I'm feeling off or I'm feeling down or I'm not that optimistic about life, it's my trigger to remind myself to restart that gratitude practice. But I want to add a little twist to this gratitude practice. I want you to send love or gratitude towards someone who thinks completely differently than you and not around the idea that they'll eventually think like you, but just any way that you feel aligned with this. You can either get specific around how you're sending love, what you wish for them. Maybe it's that they release fear. Maybe it's that they're happy and healthy. Or maybe it's just that you're sending love in that direction. Loving kindness meditation has actually been studied. If you remember back in episode 213, I had on a guest named Dr. Judson Brewer, and he wrote a book called The Craving Mind, as well as Unwinding Anxiety. But there's a whole section in The Craving Mind about what actually happens in the brain when you send love out to other people. It not only increases your mindfulness, it decreases anxiety, it increases your optimism about life. And so when you are sending this out to specific people, it actually has a profound effect on you. So this is a practice that I like to do at the end of every meditation. Instead of trying to manifest everything I want for my life, which is also something I spend time in, I send love out to other people because I know that karma is going to come back to me anyways. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a comment right here on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash x97. If you want to support Mindlove, the best way to do that is by joining Mindlove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get a backlog of over 50 exclusive episodes that are only available to premium listeners. There's going to be even more that will be gated behind the premium membership as well. You also get meditations and other bonuses and early release and ad-free listening. 
You can also support one of my amazing sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors, or you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you do, I just might read your review on the show. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week.